Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to a special Capital Conversations edition of the Federal Society's Practice Group Teleform conference call as today we discuss the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President and General Counsel at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the expert on today's call, and this call is being recorded for use as a podcast later and will likely be transcribed. We're very pleased to have with us today... uh, Udom Dillon. He's the acting administrator of the Department of the uh, Drug Enforcement Agency. He's going to speak to us and give us opening remarks of about 15 or 20 minutes, maybe a bit longer, but uh, that's the range. Um, after that, as always, we'll be looking to the audience for questions, so please have those in mind for when we get to that portion of the program. But with that, Udom Dillon, the floor is yours. Thanks, Dean. Uh, good afternoon to everyone, and uh Thank you for inviting me uh, to talk about what the great men and women of the Drug Enforcement Administration are doing during this uh, difficult time. Um, I do want to begin by assuring everyone that DEA continues to perform its essential functions of enforcing the nation's drug laws and, of course, supporting uh, our international partners in counter-narcotics investigations. But since we're, uh, it's obviously on everybody's mind uh, and since DEA may be somewhat unique as a law enforcement agency with a robust regulatory function uh, that has an impact on the pandemic, I thought I'd begin by talking about what DEA is doing regarding the pandemic and then move on to some of our uh, law enforcement initiatives. Uh, DEA and our partners across the federal government are, are working very hard to ensure uh, that Americans continue to have access to medications and uh, all the controlled substances that they need. We've established a small team of policy and regulatory experts to very quickly review and address all requests to grant temporary uh, exceptions to our regulations that will ensure continuity of care to patients who need access uh, to controlled substances uh, during the pandemic. Um, this team is in contact with, with SAMHSA, uh, to address the needs uh, for those with uh, opioid uh, use disorder. And uh, we are also working with the association representing drug distributors nationwide on a variety of issues aimed at ensuring the timely delivery of controlled substances um, from their point of production to their delivery to the, the very brave men and women uh, who are on the front lines treating patients in hospitals uh, and clinics nationwide. We're carefully monitoring uh, reports of drug shortages through our daily contact with FDA's uh, drug shortage team. Uh, And just three days ago on April 7th, we announced the increase of the aggregate production quotas um, available to pharmaceutical manufacturers for the production of controlled substance medications that are in uh, very high demand uh, due to the uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and DEA will also approve increases um, in imports of medications necessary for patients on ventilators. Um, we've made accommodations to support every major segment of the supply t- chain to include manufacturers, dis- distributors, prescribers, and dispensers. Um, uh, working with SAMHSA, we've waived certain parts of its regulations uh, relating to narcotic uh, treatment programs called NTPs 
to ensure that patients can receive uh, medication even if they're unable to leave their homes. Um, this waiver will allow uh, uh, patients to take home doses of uh, methadone and um, NTP staff or law enforcement or even the National Guard to deliver medication to patients uh, in these treatment programs if they're not able to access uh, their treatment programs uh, directly. Uh, also, uh, it, it, coordinating with HHS, we've developed uh, guidance for the practice of telemedicine for patients in need of medica medication-assisted treatment, or MAT. Uh, for example, um, uh, during the, the public health emergency, patients communicate, can communicate with their prescriber through a two-way audio-visual communication system. Um, and we're trying to remain as flexible as possible during the crisis, so we've authorized day-to-way practitioners to prescribe buprenorphine over the telephone as a way to provide medication-assisted treatment, quarantine patients uh, who don't have uh, access to the internet, the ability to still obtain uh, the drugs they need. Uh, we recognize that during the public health emergency, national, uh, narc I'm sorry, narcotic treatment programs may need uh, to maintain larger inventories of, of certain controlled substances such as methadone, so uh, DEA and SAMHSA have advised DEA uh, registered distributors uh, of the potential for an increase in orders, and we've granted an, an exception to all DEA registered bulk manufacturers to exceed their, their typical inventory caps to avoid potential um, production shortages. We've also received uh, increase from healthcare practitioners, pharmacists, and patients with regard to early refills on prescriptions for controlled substances, and we've issued guidance clarifying that practitioners are allowed to issue prescriptions for a 90-day supply of Schedule II controlled substances as long as it's allowed by state uh, law and regulation. So the bottom line is the DEA is on top of this. We're nimble and uh, will ensure that there are no regulatory or bureaucratic roadblocks that prevent any American from getting any of the medications that they need um, to fight the pandemic. Um, I'd like to now turn to some of our law enforcement initiatives, and I'll begin by describing what we've done in, in just the last month. About 10 days ago, on March 31st, um, DEA helped to uncover uh, a, a cross-border, very elaborate cross-border tunnel in San Diego used for trafficking drugs from Mexico to the U.S. It was more than 200, 2,000 feet, I'm sorry, long, uh, and federal agents uh, seized um, almost 4,400 combined pounds of cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, marijuana, and fentanyl with an estimated street value of almost $30 million. Um, on March 26th, the Attorney General announced narco-terrorism, drug trafficking, and weapons charges against uh, former Venezuelan President Maduro and other high-ranking uh, Venezuelan government officials. Uh, DEA investigations played a, a major role in, in supporting these indictments. On March 20th, DEA released a notice of proposed rulemaking that would further expand opportunities for scientific and medical research on marijuana. And on March 11th, I was proud to announce the results of Project Python, which was a combined federal, state, and local DEA-led operation uh, uh, designed to disrupt the activities of the Cartel de Jalisco Nueva Generación, commonly known as CJNG. Uh, this project, uh, this operation, resulted in more than 700 arrests, 
and the seizure of, of uh, 15,000 kilograms of methamphetamine, uh, more than 4,500 kilograms of cocaine, nearly 1,150 kilograms of heroin, and 132 kilograms of fentanyl. Uh, and the seizure of more than $22 million uh, in money and assets. So I, I wanted to talk about the things we've just been doing in the last month or so to emphasize that we're not letting up during the, the pandemic. Uh, DEA continues to aggressively attack uh, drug traffickers throughout the world um, during this difficult time. Um, so I'd like to now turn uh, to a bit of, of good news on the opioid crisis front. Um, recently, the Centers for Disease Control uh, released the latest drug overdose death statistics for 2018, and they show that overdose deaths declined uh, over uh, 4% overall, but with even greater decreases of over 13% um, uh, from uh, overdoses resulting from controlled prescription opioids. I mean, this is really important because it's the first time in nearly 30 years that we've seen a decrease in overdose deaths. And it's a significant achievement that we believe reflects uh, a lot of hard work by, by DEA and all of our partners. So how do we do it? So we think there are a number of factors. Uh, first, DEA reduced the aggregate production quotas for opioids. That is the amount that, of opioids that manufacturers can make by 54% since 2016. This has really drastically removed the amount of opioids available for, for diversion. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we just increased the quota for certain uh, of these drugs uh, needed to fight the pandemic. Um, but even with these increases, our overall decrease will only be reduced by 2%. So we'll still be looking at about a 52% uh, overall decrease, uh, even with the recent uh, increases to allow for additional drugs that are needed to uh, fight the pandemic. Also, at the start of this administration, the president set a goal of reducing opioid prescriptions by about 30%. And we've achieved that goal. Prescriptions for the seven most frequently abused opioids have declined almost 30 percent since 2017. And prescriptions for the um, extended dosage units, which are the ones that are most susceptible to abuse, have declined over 40 percent. Uh, additionally, one of the things we do is we work to educate the registrant community to stop potential diversion before it occurs. We have a program called a Pharmaceutical Diversion Awareness Conferences where we've educated over uh, 13,000 pharmacists and other uh, pharmacy personnel all across uh, the country uh, about preemptive steps that they can take uh, to prevent a diversion. And we're hosting similar events. Uh, we will be after the, uh, the, the pandemic has passed, uh, events for practitioners all across the country, uh, such as doctors, dentists, and uh, veterinarians. Um, Working with our law enforcement partners, we're also holding uh, more individuals accountable uh, and corporations accountable for actions that fuel the opioid crisis. We pursued a number of civil actions uh, against some of the nation's largest dr drug distributors. So in fiscal year 2017, we secured more than 194 million in civil penalties, more than the prior seven years combined. Uh, and then last year, uh, we secured over 35 million in civil penalties. Also last year, for the first time ever, we indicted two executives of one of the top 10 uh, pharmaceutical uh, distributors in the U.S. Um, and uh, in January of this year, we indicted several executives for another major distributor. So we are holding uh, individuals both criminally and, and uh, corporations civilly liable 
when they uh, don't follow the law and the rules. Um, in the past eight years, we've removed an average of about 900 registrants registrations annually. Those are the individuals that DEA registers to handle controlled substances, usually uh, doctors and pharmacists. Uh, and that also, of course, prevents um, the diversion of, of controlled uh, substances. Um, and over the uh, over two years ago, DEA exercised its emergency its emergency scheduling authority to to place an entire class of fentanyl related substances into Schedule One of the Controlled Substances Act. Um, these are uh, uh, fentanyl analogs, and they're extremely deadly and addictive. And they've been responsible for a number of overdose deaths in our our country. And what we've seen is that this emergency scheduling really worked. Uh, in the past few years, we've seen a, a 50% decrease in fentanyl-related substances, these analogs that we've encountered across the United States. Um, that emergency scheduling expired on February 6th, but Congress, thankfully, voted to extend it for 15 months. Uh, and that extension will give us an opportunity to work with Congress, uh, we hope, to permanently schedule uh, uh, these fentanyl analogs. We believe it's been really effective uh, in attacking uh, the opioid crisis. Um, we also have uh, seen evidence that uh, scheduling internationally is effective. Uh, in 2019, China Institute, uh, its own class-wide ban of fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. And since that time, uh, the amount of fentanyl coming from China has declined fairly uh, precipitously from 2013 uh, to 2019, we've seen a very significant decrease uh, of fentanyl coming from China. Um, we've identified uh, uh, two kinds of fentanyl labs that are operating in Mexico, uh, those that manufacture counterfeit prescription medications and labs that are synthesizing uh, fentanyl. We're seeing that Mexican cartels are, are working on ways uh, to produce their own precursor t uh, chemicals and fentanyl in due, uh, due in part to the additional restrictions uh, that, we've, that China has placed uh, on these substances. Uh, we continue to work um, with our Mexican counterparts to identify and shut down uh, these clandestine labs and other clandestine labs in Mexico and to dismantle the uh, criminal organizations um, that operate them. And we're working with the government of Mexico to control uh, more fentanyl-related substances and precursor chemicals uh, to get Mexico to, uh, to uh, uh, expand uh, their, uh, their controls over these various uh, precursor chemicals. Which, since we're speaking of Mexico, let me talk a little bit about what we're seeing there. Um, Mexican transnational criminal organizations uh, remain the greatest uh, criminal drug threat uh, to the United States. Uh, these cartels are, are uh, the principal wholesale drug sources uh, for domestic street gangs, which, of course, are responsible for the retail distribution of, of drugs in our communities. Uh, the Sinaloa cartel and the, uh, and the CJNG continue to be the most dominant uh, cartels here in the U.S. Uh, we have uh, quite a few uh, special agents and intel analysts uh, across 11 offices in Mexico, and they continue to work with our partners in the uh, in Mexico uh, to attack these drug trafficking organizations. Uh, we work on uh, with our Mexican uh, law enforcement partners on interdiction, information sharing, money laundering, asset forfeiture, targeting the command and control structure of these organizations, and of course the destruction of laboratories. Um, 
And uh, last November, we uh, surged additional personnel uh, into Mexico to supplement the excellent work that our people there are already doing. So we are aggressively attacking um, these uh, drug trafficking organizations uh, in Mexico. Um, I think I mentioned earlier uh, uh, Project Python, an operation that uh, targets uh, CJNG. Uh, CJNG is one of the fastest growing transnational criminal organizations in Mexico, and uh, it's among the most prolific uh, methamphetamine producers in the world. It's responsible for a lot of the drugs uh, entering the United States, and it's also responsible for a lot of the uh, increased violence uh, in Mexico. Uh, so we'll continue to work with our, our Mexican uh, law enforcement partners to combat these uh, Mexican transnational criminal organizations uh, that are responsible for uh, poisoning uh, our communities with their uh, deadly drugs. Uh, also, I want to talk about the, the recent CDC overdose death report uh, demonstrates that uh, methamphetamine continues to be a very significant problem. We've seen it. Uh, the CDC reported a, an increase of about 22% uh, in methamphetamine overdoses. Uh, we're seeing uh, both seizures and arrests increasing dramatically. Um, from 2017 to 2019, we've uh, we've had domestic seizures increase of about 24, 124%, whereas uh, arrests have increased about 19%. So we're seeing some, uh, uh, we're being successful in attacking uh, methamphetamine, but we're seeing uh, uh, an increase in, in overdose deaths, which, which is causing us to really focus uh, uh, on methamphetamine also. Um, the vast majority of meth entering the U.S. is manufactured in, in so-called super labs in Mexico. These are math labs that are capable of producing multi-ton quantities of meth on a weekly basis. Um, in September, I toured uh, one of these super labs in Sinaloa, and it had been staffed by over 40 people, and it was estimated that it could produce uh, about 3,000 kilograms of methamphetamine uh, per week. So meth is a se serious problem, and we're aggressively attacking it. Uh, I was in China in January, and I asked the government of China to schedule meth precursors. They've done a, a, a good work in scheduling uh, Fentanyl precursors, but meth precursors are still something that are, are not fully scheduled in China. So we've asked them to uh, focus on that, to make them illegal. And we're hoping that we can substantially reduce the availability of those precursors to Mexican uh, drug trafficking organizations. Um, pretty much all the meth comes uh, through uh, ports of entry along the southwest border, and it's transported by tractor trailers uh, and, and personal vehicles along our, our nation's highways. Uh, uh, along with other drugs. So one of the things that we've done is we've uh, uh, launched a, uh, an operation uh, to attack these uh, uh, transportation hubs. That's called Operation uh, Crystal Shield. And our goal is to attack uh, the, the locations the, throughout the country, the cities throughout the country where the drug traffickers stage uh, their distribution uh, in bulk form and prevent and get the bulk methamphetamine before it makes its way uh, to, uh, to our neighborhoods. Um, right now we're focused on, on eight cities and we'll, uh, these are the eight cities that account for about 75% of all of DEA's domestic uh, methamphetamine seizures uh, in 2017. So 
That covers all the major topics I wanted to cover. So if there are any questions, I'd be pleased to, to answer them. Thank you. Well, terrific. Thank you so much, Administrator Dillon. Let's open the floor to questions. As a great uh, summary and background, uh, Administrator Dillon, well, I'm curious, uh, you covered a lot of territory, but what really keeps you up at night or really keeps you, uh, what, you know, weighs on your mind as, as the administrator of the Drug Enforcement Agency? Well, um, these global drug trafficking organizations present a lot of things that, that uh, uh, could keep you up at night, but I, also, I think fentanyl, uh, is probably still remains one of our, our, our biggest concerns. Um, it is a synthetic opioid, which means it, it can be manufactured at uh, uh, in very large quantities like methamphetamine. Um, there's no growing cycle for it, like drugs that, that are reliant upon a, a, you know, the growth of a plant. And so uh, it, it's something that can be manufactured very readily and very quickly. And it's it's so very addictive and so very deadly that uh, that my single I think biggest concern is 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 aggressively attacking uh, fentanyl uh, uh, routes where precursors are coming into uh, into Mexico by working with China and of course attacking fentanyl production uh, within Mexico. You've mentioned now Mexico a few times, um, or the southwest border interchangeable, I suppose. Um, and, and you've actually given some statistics. I'm wondering, in terms of the entire illicit drug trade, do, do we know how much um, comes through the, the southwest border with Mexico? Yeah, we know that the vast majority of the illicit drugs that enter the United States. I'm talking about um, you know, methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, fentanyl, uh, marijuana. They're coming across the southwest border. Uh, we do know that, uh, and they're they're largely brought across the southwest border by Mexican drug trafficking organizations. The two uh, cartels I mentioned are the primary drivers of drugs into the United States. Interesting. Um, are there are there particular gaps in, in your authorities and, and the tools you have at DEA? Uh, are there things missing that you could um, uh, put to good use? I wouldn't necessarily call them gaps in our authority. I mentioned before the um, uh, the extension of uh, our uh, temporary authority to control fentanyl analogs. Um, that's that was a two year authority that we we exercised, and Congress extended it for fifteen months. But that's something that's really critical for us. Uh, and so I would say that uh, you know, in fifteen months, if we can get a, a permanent extension of that authority, that would be a huge. A significant uh, problem for us. Let me just let me just put a really f fine point on this. Fentanyl analogs are as deadly as fentanyl. Uh, the problem is the the that the, they are molecularly different from fentanyl, and therefore they're not covered under the Controlled Substances Act. So a, 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 tr a drug trafficking organization that can hire a chemist and they've got plenty of money to do this, who can develop these analogs, can develop drugs as deadly as fentanyl, but uh, and very similar to fentanyl but uh, they aren't covered. So extending that, making that a permanent extension gives us the ability to, uh, to uh, attack drug traffickers who are creating these fentanyl analogs. And in fact, what we've seen is with our, with our temporary uh, uh, scheduling, they don't even bother making the, uh, the uh, analogs because they know they're, they're going to they're face the same penalties and they're, they're illegal in the U.S. So that's one. The other one I would say is lawful access, which is our ability to access encrypted devices. Drug traffickers are more and more using 
uh, encrypted communications means uh, to communicate. Uh, we can obtain a warrant uh, to to access that information, but because it's encrypted, we can't actually see it. So we need uh, to uh, we need leg- uh, legislative uh, changes to allow us to do that. Th- those would be hugely uh, critical. Those two areas would be hugely uh, helpful to us. And I, I take it both of them, including the, the, the encryption and extending uh, to analogs and beyond, that also requires legislation? Yeah. So we'll be working with Congress for, the, for a permanent extension on uh, the analogs. And the attorney general and the FBI director and uh, many others at the Department of Justice, including DEA, we're all uh, working towards uh, a solution to the, uh, to the lawful access issue with Congress. Very good. We do have a couple audience questions. I do, I've got one more question that I think uh, sure. comes out of something you just mentioned, um, and that's what you're doing, what DEA is doing with regard to drug abuse prevention. Um, yeah. you, you talked a lot about interdiction and, and illegal drug use. A lot of times folks are uh, want to concentrate on decreasing demand um, rather than just attacking supply. Uh, are, is, is DEA involved in drug abuse prevention? Yeah. So, I mean, so this administration has taken a whole of government approach. We, 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 this, it, you're you're going to only succeed here if you focus on prevention, treatment, and enforcement. DEA primarily does enforcement, but we also have a prevention role, and it's kind of partly traditional. It goes back to the 80s. Um, in the 80s, we had a uh, special agent, uh, Enrique Kike Camarena, who was kidnapped by Mexican drug traffickers, uh, brutally tortured and murdered by them. Uh, and that elicited uh, for us um, a couple of things, uh, an opportunity to remember his sacrifice and the sacrifice of, of, of all of those who've been fighting uh, drugs for many, many years, and an opportunity to remind um, young people uh, about Kiki's sacrifice and how important it is for them to uh, understand how dangerous these drugs are. And so every October, we have a Red Ribbon Week where we remember uh, Agent Camarena and others who have sacrificed. And then we also, within all of our divisions throughout the country, uh, go and educate uh, 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 school kids about um, the dangers of drug abuse and ask them to take a pledge not to, not to take drugs. So that's something that's both uh, a tradition for us. It's important. It's an important tradition for us. We're, we were thrilled uh, this last October uh, at our kickoff event to actually, we were honored to have the first lady uh, come and uh, and be our, our guest speaker at our, our, our kickoff event. It was the first time a first lady had ever done that. Uh, and it's a way of just reminding people that uh, if you don't start taking drugs, you can't become addicted and you can't be hurt by them. And so we think that's an important role to play. And uh, we do that. We also do our national prescription drug take back day, which occurs twice a year in, in April and October. This April, unfortunately, we're having to postpone it because of the pandemic, but we hope to have that soon. And that's an opportunity for Americans all around, uh, throughout the country to bring their unwanted, unused, and unneeded prescription medications to a location near them for safe disposal. It also ends up being a twice-a-year reminder to Americans about uh, the dangers of the drugs in their medicine cabinets and that everybody can take a role uh, in drug prevention. So those are just a couple of the things that we do. But, but even though enforcement is our primary mission, we think that being the enforcers, we, we also should have a, a voice, an important voice in prevention. And uh, so we do focus on, on some prevention efforts. Let's take our first question of the day from the audience. Go right ahead, caller. Good afternoon. Uh, I have two questions. One of them you already answered about the synthetic 
analogs of fentanyl and how important that is in, in the laws and, and, and that our current laws don't really cover the analogs. So thank you for that. I was wondering um, about your relationship with uh, the FDA and how you all interact. Uh, is, it a, is it a good relationship? Is there anything more that the FDA can be doing to help you? Yes, it's a good relationship. There's a lot of, of connection between us and the FDA. So, uh, for example, in order for uh, us to uh, schedule a drug, uh, let's say that we've, we've seen something that people are using or abusing and we don't think it has a, any medical benefit, we would ask the, uh, the, the HHS Health and Human Services, uh, and the FDA is a, a part of that, we would ask them to go through the process of, of examining the drug and, and conducting their, their uh, going through their process to determine if, if the drug does in fact have uh, any uh, medically known benefits. And they then go through that process and make a recommendation for us to schedule and then we'll schedule it. So that's just one way uh, we work with the FDA, but no, we have, a, I think, an excellent working relationship with the FDA. I should also say that um, a few months ago, when there was a vaping issue, and we were seeing people um, who were who are dying from from using certain vaping products, there's a, there's some areas where uh, the FDA has has obviously more exclusive, exclusive jurisdiction when it comes to vaping. DEA would only deal with uh, the vaping of, of illegal substances like uh, uh, THC, the the the, uh, the substance in marijuana, but we work hand in glove with FDA to make sure that our that, that our response was coordinated and that we were we were addressing the issue in a way uh, that was the most effective. So I think we have a great working relationship with FDA. Thank you. Uh, not unrelated to that, uh, Administrator Dillon. Um, You've mentioned Mexico, you've mentioned China, uh, now we're talking about coordination with the FDA. Um, I'm wondering what you're doing, if anything, to coordinate with uh, with the governments of China, if you want to say more about that, China, Mexico, Colombia. Does that involve our U.S. State Department? Um, it sounds like a potentially complicated sort of set of dynamics there. It, it is. Let me just say that we're in about 69 countries throughout the world. So DEA is 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 one of, if not the most, global law enforcement agency in the world. Um, each country has its own unique uh, issues. Uh, so yes, in China we we have uh, offices in China. We work with Chinese law enforcement. Uh, we work with uh, uh, the State Department there. So the issues in China, the biggest issues that we've been dealing with are the, the uh, precursor chemicals coming from China to Mexico uh, so that the Mexican drug cartels can then make the, the synthetic drugs that, that, are, that they then uh, bring into uh, the U.S. to the southwest border. So we've been working with them. We've been successful on the fentanyl precursor front. We've now asked them to focus on the methamphetamine precursor issue. Um, you know, with, with uh, a country like Colombia, obviously that's where the majority of cocaine comes from that comes into the United States. So we work with them on attacking drug trafficking organizations in Colombia. Our goal is always to attack the drug traffickers, uh, you know, where they reside, not, not when they're in the U.S. We, we, we work the whole chain, but we always try to start where they're at. So we work with the Colombians, for example, to, to eradicate uh, coca so that you can't even, you know, create cocaine. 
to interdict uh, cocaine uh, as it, after it's been manufactured and it's being transported within Colombia, to interdict cocaine on the high seas as it's coming to, uh, to Mexico or by air as it's leaving South America. Um, and with Mexico, of course, we, we, uh, uh, we work with them in a number of different ways. The drug trafficking organizations that are bringing the majority of drugs into the U.S. are located in Mexico. So uh, we work as closely as we can with Mexican law enforcement to attack the drug traffickers right there in Mexico, to identify and destroy laboratories that are making uh, uh, these drugs, uh, to identify uh, you know, the individuals that are engaged in drug trafficking in Mexico and to bring them to justice. So it really just depends. Every country has its own unique issues, and DEA is in, uh, like I said, uh, almost 70 countries uh, throughout the world, and we engage each country individually. Uh, but that also is what makes us effective, because drug trafficking is a global problem. These are global criminal organizations. They don't respect our borders, and we have to, uh, we have to attack them in that way. Let's take another call from the audience. It's more in the line of prevention, and it really wouldn't come under your jurisdiction, but in Australia, where I lived for many years, there was a teenage boy problem of petrol sniffing. And you can see there was no financial incentive for anyone to <laughs> traffic in those drugs because the gasoline is there. But then we had a Royal Commission on Child Sexual Abuse, and about 8,000 kids came forward. They're, you know, maybe adults now, but they were kids. And suddenly we discovered they were the petrol sniffers. In other words, it was their harsh family life. And situation that was giving them the need for relief. And I suppose then they would go on to other drugs. So you mentioned the prevention at the school level. But really, if this kid is so in need, I don't think he's going to be taking the pledge or honoring the pledge, if you know what I mean. You're right. That's not totally something that, that we deal with. Our, our prevention activities are uh, not as robust as HHS's, for example, and states and others. But I, I do think that prevention is, is critically important. In my view, you know, if you can, if you can convince somebody that not to use the drugs at all, then you've really solved a lot of the other problems. Uh, you don't have to treat them. Uh, and our enforcement job becomes uh, a, an easier job, right? Because the demand's going to go down. Um, let me actually, if I could also tee off of your question to something else. Uh, one of the things we learned with the opioid crisis is that supply matters. Uh, we saw parts of the country that were flooded with prescription drugs, and we saw uh, addiction and, and, and overdose death rates skyrocket in those areas. Um, that's really important because from the enforcement perspective, we know that when we reduce supply, we also have the opportunity to reduce uh, demand. And so um, uh, I think that's, that's important, and it's also important on the prevention front. That means that there are people that if they don't have access to drugs, we think that they won't actually even uh, start uh, uh, using uh, these illegal drugs. Um, I know that doesn't totally answer your question, but that's a little, there are other uh, parts of the federal government and state governments that deal more with uh, prevention uh, issues. Let's take our next call. Go ahead, caller. Yes, thank you. This is Michael Kilski in Arizona. Isn't it time to acknowledge there exists, uh, that there exists no enumerated power for the federal government to be doing any of this as evidenced by the need to pass a constitutional amendment before prohibition and that the insane war on drugs has been lost decades ago as again evidenced by the passage of a constitutional amendment repealing prohibition? Well, 
I'm going to leave it to uh, to constitutional scholars to to discuss in more detail the uh, the uh, the legal issue you raised. Our job is to enforce the federal uh, drug laws, and that's what we do aggressively. I'm going to disagree pretty strongly with the notion that we've quote unquote lost the war on drugs, and we lost it a, a decade ago. Uh, look, every single time we take a drug off the street, we save a life. So that, and let me tell you something, you can't stop all crime ever. You know, we prosecute as a, 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 a assistant U.S. attorney in Los Angeles, I prosecuted bank robbery crimes. I can promise you, even though I was putting people in jail in the 90s, there were still people robbing banks in Los Angeles today. So you're not going to stop all crime. But our goal is to get this down to a point where people, we don't have almost 70,000 Americans dying of drug overdoses every year. And that is an achievable goal. This administration has put more money and more energy, and this president has, into attacking uh, the drug crisis than any other administration ever. And the whole of government approach, prevention, treatment, and, uh, and enforcement is working. And the evidence that it's working is that we've seen overdose deaths go down for the first time in, in, in 29 years. So I just can't agree with your premise that, uh, that attacking this problem is, is hopeless. It is not. And I, again, I will say every ounce of every illegal drug we take off the street prevents somebody from becoming addicted or prevents somebody from dying of a drug overdose. And uh, that's the mission of DEA, and it's a mission we're proud uh, to, uh, to uh, have. We've got two questions pending now. We seem to be generating uh, more activity in the audience. Um, let's take another call. Go ahead, caller. Hi, my name's Annie St. Hilaire, and I study at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. And recently, Governor Baker put a ban on the purchase of vaping tools, which I think was a very good initiative and move to make when it came to just preventing people from having access to it. But a lot of people, especially like in my generation, they were so upset. They were so livid by this position that he took. And I guess my question is, how can I defend the fact that drugs are not good and any way that we can prevent them from being distributed or dispensed can actually help build not only our economy, but can help us just go in a more healthy direction with our personal lifestyles and care. Um, well, I'm not going to really address the vaping issue. That's more of an FDA kind of an issue. And, and, but on your question of, of drugs not being good, um, for me, it's always been pretty straightforward. Um, first of all, people dying from drug overdoses. Many people who die of drug overdoses are, are, are overdosing on drugs they weren't even they didn't realize they were taking. So we're seeing that various drugs are being uh, adulterated with fentanyl, for example. So somebody who buys methamphetamine might have fentanyl in the methamphetamine, didn't realize that and overdose because of the fentanyl. That danger alone should, in my view, keep anybody from using any illicit drug. And let me tell you something else. I mentioned earlier that I um, uh, visited 
a meth lab in Mexico. You know, when you say lab, Americans often think of a kind of a pristine building with, you know, big stainless steel cylinders and people in lab coats. That is not what a meth lab in Mexico looks like. It's, it's literally built in a jungle in dirt um, by people who, frankly, have probably no expertise at all in doing this. You, Americans are purchasing this product and putting it in their body. And it has there's absolutely no control, no quality control, no cleanliness control over over these drugs. And it's not just that it's every illicit drug you get uh, from uh, uh, from a street dealer. So the best thing I can tell you is you don't know what you're buying. And if you don't know what you're buying, don't use it because it can kill you. And also it, it is just so impure that if you saw these labs, no American were we're, we're, we're such a, a fastidious people, and yet I'm stunned that we put drugs uh, into our bodies that are literally made in the dirt, in jungles, uh, in Mexico, and in other parts of the world. So that's the best thing I can tell you as to how you can try to convince people not to use drugs. And, of course, the bottom line is they'll ultimately uh, ruin, your life, uh, ruin your life and kill you. So. We've got one question pending, and what you just said reminds me of some of the debate I've heard. I've heard more of the debate on efficacy and impurities when it comes to reimportation or importation of uh, pharmaceutical quality drugs, not even illicit drugs, but uh, drugs you can buy legally here, but uh, presumably you can buy them more cheaply from foreign uh, sources. I have heard um, discussions with regard to the reimportation of drugs about um, the, the the circumstances under which they're manufactured. I don't think people have often thought about the circumstances under which the illicit drugs are manufactured, but uh, thanks for bringing that up. With that, uh, let's take what could be our final question uh, of the call. Go ahead, caller. Good afternoon, Administrator. Thanks for your time. Several years ago, DEA was rather occupied with taking down a lot of the homegrown and mobile meth labs. And since then, and the success the DA has had, what we've seen is a lot of what you described, the you know, so-called super labs in Mexico that are now producing quantities of methamphetamine, purities of methamphetamine that are much, much higher than things we'd seen domestically years ago, where street seizures of almost any quantity are 97, 98, 99% pure methamphetamine when we're getting them back from the labs. I appreciate the efforts that you're putting in towards uh, stomping out a lot of the precursors that are coming over illegally or sometimes legally from China to Mexico. But given that the advent of super labs was perhaps an unintended consequence of stamping out the domestic production, what do you see as what might be the next unintended consequence? What's the next step that uh, drug manufacturers, uh, illegal narcotics manufacturers will move to once we've been able to stop some of the chemicals coming over? And what do you see DEA is doing to counter whatever may come next as a consequence of uh, whatever success we may have? Thank you. Yeah, so you're welcome. Thank you for the question. I, I think the, the biggest issue we're going to face over the next few years is is the growth of synthetics. Uh, so... A situation in which drug trafficking organizations can simply manufacture their drugs in these in these super labs or factories, uh, where they can develop precursor chemicals that aren't reliant upon uh, obtaining the precursor chemicals from overseas, but can actually use chemicals that are readily available, uh, and then develop uh, precursors for these drugs from those uh, uh, from 
readily available chemicals, chemicals that you couldn't you couldn't control because they're needed for other purposes. They're very they're, they have multiple legitimate purposes. Uh, I think that is kind of the, what the future may hold, and so and we're looking at that. I mean, we're 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 aware of the fact that, that that's a, a situation we could be in. I, I want to tell you that one of the things that I did when I got to DEA um, uh, in July of 2018 was I, I asked everyone to start looking forward. Don't just tell me what we're doing now. Don't just tell me what the traffickers are doing now. Tell me what what they're going to be doing a year, two years, three years, five years from now, and tell me how we're going to attack it. So we are always looking at how they change their, their methods. They're, they've got enormous amounts of money. They're very nimble. Uh, they're very entrepreneurial. And we are, uh, we are very aware of the fact that they're, they have the ability to, uh, to alter the methods very quickly. And we're focusing on that. So I would say that's our, our uh, if we look forward, one of the, the, our largest, our biggest concerns. Well, Administrator Dillon, I think we've had our last question of the day, but I do want to give you a chance to wrap up, express a final thought if you've got one. Sure. Uh, well, um, I just want to say that, you know, notwithstanding uh, everything we're all dealing with, uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and I know all federal law enforcement, has not stopped working. Uh, uh, we are uh, focused on the needs of the American people during the pandemic and doing everything we can to ensure that they have the drugs they need uh, to be treated uh, effectively. Uh, and we're still going after the drug traffickers. Uh, so I would just uh, uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about uh, what, what, uh, the, what we're doing uh, every day um, uh, during these difficult times and uh, ask everyone uh, to stay safe and to keep your, your family safe. Thank you very much. Well, thanks to you, Administrators. Great to have you on. Uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts and, and uh, getting, getting, giving us some insight into the, uh, the DEA. We certainly appreciate it. I also want to thank the audience for dialing in and for your questions, uh, and we appreciate those as always. Please uh, check the Federal Society's website and monitor your emails for our evolving uh, schedule of teleform conference calls. Uh, but until that next call, we are adjourned. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.